Hello and welcome back to another chapter of Womance's public access read-along of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. I am your even chapter reader, Isabeau. And I am your odd chapter reader, Morgan. Hey Morgan, what's up? Oh, not much. Just uh, sitting here fiddling with my paperback copy I got from a little free library of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Gorgeous. Looking at, I've got wow. the pages open to chapter 18. Oh, chapter 18. That's an even chapter. I know. I know. Two discreet piles of nine. <laughs> well, since this is an even chapter, would you go ahead and tell us what happened in chapter 17? Yeah, basically, the Bennets got personally invited to the ball. At the Netherfield Ball by the Bingley Bunch. Oh, that's nice. And Jane was like, I'm sure everything between Darcy and Wickham is a misunderstanding and that they're both super guys. (laughs) Equally, if differently, super in their own ways. Oh, and Lizzie's uh, figured out that her cousin wants to marry her. Yeah. So, like... Soaring highs, disparate lows over the course of two pages. Oh man, chapter 17. What a ride. What a ride. Which brings us to 18. Till Elizabeth entered the dining room at Netherfield and looked in vain for Mr. Wickham among the cluster of red coats there assembled, a doubt of his being present had never occurred to her. The certainty of meeting him had not been checked by any of those recollections that might not reasonably, unreasonably, have alarmed her. She had dressed with more than usual care and prepared in the highest spirits for the conquest of all that remained unsubdued in his heart, trusting that it was not more than might be won in the course of an evening. But an instant arose, but in an instant arose the dreadful suspicion of his being purposely omitted for Mr. Darcy's pleasure in the Bingley's invitation to the officers, and though this was not exactly the case, the absolute fact of his absence was pronounced by his friend Mr. Denny, to whom Lydia eagerly applied, and who told them that Wickham had been obliged to go to town on business the day before, and was not yet returned, adding, with a significant smile, I do not imagine his business would have called him away just now if he had not wished to avoid a certain gentleman here. This part of his intelligence, though unheard by Lydia was caught by Elizabeth, and as it assured her that Darcy was not less answerable for Wickham's absence than if her first surmise had been just, every feeling of displeasure against the former was so sharpened by immediate disappointment that she could hardly reply with tolerable civility to the polite inquiries which he directly afterwards approached to make. Attention, forbearance, patience with Darcy was injury to Wickham. She was resolved against any sort of conversation with him and turned away with a degree of ill humor which she could not wholly surmount even in speaking to Mr. Bingley, whose blind partiality provoked her. But Elizabeth was not formed for ill humor, and though every prospect of her own was destroyed for the evening, it could not dwell long on her spirits, and having told all her griefs to Charlotte Lucas, whom she had not seen for a week, she was soon able to make a voluntary transition to the oddities of her cousin and to, the, and to point him out to her particular notice. The first two dances, however, brought a return of distress. They were dances of mortification. 
Mr. Collins, awkward and solemn, apologizing instead of attending and often moving wrong without being aware of it, gave her all the shame and misery which a disagreeable partner for a couple of dances can give. The moment of her release from him was ecstasy. Apologizing instead of attending. <laughs> Can't wait to throw that in someone's face. It's <laughs> so good. Great. It is so true. I know. She danced next with an officer and had the refreshment of talking of Wickham and of hearing that he was universally liked. When the, those dances were over, she returned to Charlotte Lucas and was in conversation with her when she found herself suddenly addressed by Mr. Darcy, who took her so much by surprise in his application for her hand that without knowing what she did, she accepted him. He walked away again immediately, and she was left to fret over her own want of presence of mind. Charlotte tried to console her. I dare say you will find him very agreeable. Heaven forbid! That would be the greatest misfortune of all, to find a man agreeable whom one is determined to hate. Do not wish me such an evil. Ugh, ain't the truth, though. So true. When the dancing recommenced, however, and Darcy approached to claim her hand, Charlotte could not help cautioning her in a whisper not to be a simpleton and allow her fancy for Wickham to make her appear unpleasant in the eyes of a man of ten times his consequence. Elizabeth made no answer and took her place in the set, amazed at the dignity to which she was arrived in being allowed to stand opposite to Mr. Darcy and reading in her neighbor's looks their equal amazement in beholding it. They stood for some time without speaking a word, and she began to imagine that their silence was to last through the two dances, <laughs> and at first was resolved not to break it, till suddenly fancying that it would be the greater punishment to her partner to oblige him to talk, she made him some slight observation on the dance. He replied and was again silent. After a pause of some minutes, she addressed him a second time with, It is your turn to say something now, Mr. Darcy. I talked about the dance, and you ought to make some kind of remark on the size of the room or the number of couples. He smiled and assured her that whatever she wished him to say should be said. Very well. That reply will do for the present. Perhaps by then by I may observe that private balls are much pleasanter than public ones, but now we may be silent. Do you talk by rule, then, while you are dancing? Sometimes. One must speak a little, you know. It would look odd to be entirely silent for half an hour together, and yet for the advantage of some, conversation ought to be so arranged as that they may have the trouble of saying as little as possible. Are you consulting your own feelings in the present case, or do you imagine that you are gratifying mine? Both, replied Elizabeth archly, for I have always seen a great similarity in the turn of our minds. We are each of an unsocial, taciturn disposition, unwilling to speak unless we expect to say something that will amaze the whole room, and be handed down to posterity with all the eclat of a proverb. This is no very striking resemblance of your own character, I am sure, said he. How near it may be to mine, I cannot pretend to say. You think it a faithful portrait, undoubtedly. I must not decide on my own performance. He made no answer, and they were again silent till they had gone down the dance. When he asked her if she, had her, if she and her sisters did not very often walk to Meryton, she answered in the affirmative, and unable to resist the temptation, added, When you met us there the other day, we had just been forming a new acquaintance. The effect was immediate. A deeper shade of hauteur overspread his features, but he said not a word, and Elizabeth, though blaming herself for her own weakness, could not could not go on. At length, Darcy spoke, and in a constrained manner said, 
Mr. Wickham is blessed with such happy manners as may ensure his making friends. Whether he may be equally capable of retaining them is less certain. He has been so unlucky as to lose your friendship, replied Elizabeth with emphasis, and in a manner which he is likely to suffer from all his life. Darcy made no answer and seemed desirous of changing the subject. At that moment, Sir William Lucas appeared close to them, meaning to pass through the set to the other side of the room. But on perceiving Mr. Darcy, he stopped with a bow of superior courtesy to compliment him on his dancing and his partner. I have been most highly gratified indeed, my dear sir. Such very superior dancing is not often seen. It is evident that you belong to the first circles. Allow me to say, however, that your fair partner does not disgrace you, and that I must hope to have this pleasure often repeated, especially when a certain desirable event, my dear Miss Eliza, glancing at her sister and Bigley, shall take place. What congratulations will then flow in? I appeal to Mr. Darcy, but let me not interrupt you, sir. You will not thank me for detaining you from the bewitching converse of that young lady with bright eyes are also a great whose bright eyes are also upbraiding me. The last... <laughs> Lucas ain't no dummy. I know. The latter part of this address was scarcely heard by Darcy, but Sir William's allusion to his friend seemed to strike him forcibly, and his eyes were directed with a very serious expression towards Bingley and Jane, who were dancing together. Recovering himself, however, shortly, he turned to his partner and said, Sir William's inter interruption has made me forget what we were talking of. I do not think we were speaking at all. Sir William could not have interrupted any two people in the room who had less to say for themselves. We have tried two or three subjects already without success, and what we are to talk of next I cannot imagine. What think you of books? He said, smiling. Books! Oh, no. I'm sure we never read the same, or not with the same feelings. I'm sorry you think so. But if that be the case, there can at least be no want of subject. We may compare our different opinions. No, I cannot talk of books in a ballroom. My head is always full of something else. The present always occupies you in such scenes, does it? Said he, with a look of doubt. Yes, always, she replied, without knowing what she said, for her thoughts had wandered far away from the subject as soon afterwards appeared by her suddenly exclaiming, I remember hearing you once say, Mr. Darcy, that you hardly ever forgave, that your resentment once created was unappeasable. unappeasable. You are very cautious, I suppose, as to its being created. I am, said he, with a firm voice, and never allow yourself to be blinded by prejudice. I hope not. It is not particularly incumbent on those who never change their opinion to be secure of judging. It is particularly incumbent on those who never change their opinion to be secure of judging properly at first. May I ask to what these questions tend? Merely, merely to the illustration of your character, said she, endeavoring to shake off her gravity. I'm trying to make it out. And what is your success? She shook her head. I do not get on at all. I hear such different accounts of you as puzzle me exceedingly. I can readily believe, he answered he gravely, that reports may vary greatly with respect to me. And I could wish, Miss Bennet, that you were not to sketch my character at the present moment, as there is reason to fear that the performance would reflect no credit on either. But if I do not take your likeness now, I may never have another opportunity. I would by no means suspend any pleasure of yours, he coldly replied. She said no more, and they went down the other dance and parted in silence, on each side dissatisfied, though not to an equal degree. For in Darcy's breast, there was a tolerable, powerful feeling towards her, which soon procured her pardon and directed all his anger against another. We've got like a chapter, we've got like kind of a lot of chapter to go, and so I, I feel the need to express myself. Okay. 
before we move on, I smiled throughout that entire exchange. That was delightful. And it reminded me of our conversation as to whether or not Wickham is intentionally charmless in his dialogue. Mm -hmm. And he has to be, right? Because she's so good Mm -hmm. at writing charming dialogue. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's resolved for me. That's a good result. They had not long, they had not long separated when Miss Bingley came towards her and with an expression of civil disdain thus accosted her. So, Miss Eliza, I hear you are quite delighted with George Wickham. Your sister has been talking to me about him and asking me a thousand questions, and I find that the young man forgot to tell you, among his other communications, that he was the son of old Wickham, the late Mr. Darcy's steward. Let me recommend you, however, as a friend, not to give implicit confidence to all his assertions. For as to Mr. Darcy's using him ill, it is perfectly false. For, on the contrary, he has always been remarkably kind to him, though George Wickham has treated Mr. Darcy in a most infamous manner. I do not know the particulars, but I know very well that Mr. Darcy is not the least to blame, that he cannot bear to hear George Wickham mentioned, and that though my brother thought he could not well avoid including him in his invitation to the officers, he was excessively glad to find that he had taken himself out of the way. His coming into the country at all is a most insolent thing indeed, And I wonder how he could presume to do it. I pity you, Miss Eliza, for this discovery of your favorite's guilt. But really, considering his descent, one could not expect much better. His guilt and his descent appeared, by your account, to be the same, said Elizabeth angrily. For I've heard you accuse him of nothing nothing worse than being the son of Mr. Darcy's steward. And of that, I can assure you, he informed me himself. I beg your pardon, replied Miss Bingley, turning away with a sneer. Excuse my interference. It was kindly meant. (laughs) Insolent girl, (laughs) said Elizabeth to herself. You are much mistaken if you expect to influence me by such a paltry attack as this. I see nothing in it but your own willful ignorance and the malice of Mr. Darcy. She then sought her eldest sister, who had undertaken to make inquiries on the same subject of Bingley. Jane met her with a smile of such sweet complacency, a glow of such happy expression as sufficiently marked how well she was satisfied with the occurrences of the evening. Elizabeth instantly read her feelings, and at that moment, solicitude for Wickham, resentment against his enemies, and everything else gave way before the hope of Jane's being in the fairest way for happiness. I want to know, said she, with a countenance no less smiling than her sister's, what you have learnt about Mr. Wickham. Perhaps you have been too pleasantly engaged to think of any third person, in which case you may be sure of my pardon. No, replied Jane, I've not forgotten him, but I have nothing satisfactory to tell you. Mr. Bingley does not know the whole of his history, and is quite ignorant of the circumstances which have principally offended Mr. Darcy, and he will vouch for the good conduct. The probability and the honor of his friend, is perfectly convinced that Mr. Wickham has deserved much less attention from Mr. Darcy than he has received, and I am sorry to say by his account, as well as his sister's, Mr. Wickham is by no means a respectable young man. I am afraid he has been very imprudent, and has deserved to lose Mr. Darcy's regard. Mr. Bingley does not know Mr. Wickham himself. No, he never saw him till the other morning in Meryton. This account, then, is what he has received from Mr. Darcy, and perfectly satisfied. But what does he say of the living? does not exactly recollect the circumstances, though he has heard from Mr. Darcy more than once, but he believes that it was left to him conditionally only. I have not a doubt of Mr. Bingley's sincerity, said Elizabeth warmly. 
But you must excuse my being convinced by assurances only. Mr. Bingley's defense of his friend was a very able one, I dare say, but since he is unacquainted with several parts of the story and has learnt the rest from that friend himself, I shall venture still to think of both gentlemen as I did before. She then changed the discourse to one more gratifying to each, and on which there could be no different difference of sentiment. Elizabeth listened with delight to the happy, though modest, hopes which Jane entertained of Bingley's regard, and said in all her power to heighten her confidence in it. On their being joined by Mr. Bingley himself, Elizabeth withdrew to Miss Lucas, to whose inquiry after the pleasantness of her last partner she had scarcely replied, before Mr. Collins came up to them and told her with great exultation that he had just been so fortunate as to make a most important discovery. I found out, said he, by singular accident, that there is now in the room a near relation of my patroness. I happened to overhear the gentleman himself mention to the young lady who does the honors of this house the names of his cousin, Mr. Berg, and her, of her mother, Lady Catherine. How wonderfully these sort of things occur. Who would have thought of my meeting with perhaps a nephew of Lady Catherine <laughs> de Berg and this assembly? I'm most thankful that the discovery is made in time for me to pay my respects to him, which I'm now going to do, and trust you will excuse my not having done it before. My total ignorance of the connection must plead my apology. You're not going to introduce yourself to Mr. Darcy. Indeed I am. I shall entreat his pardon for not having done it earlier. I believe him to be Lady Catherine's nephew. It will be in my power to assure him that her ladyship was quite well yesterday, Sunday night. Elizabeth tried hard to dissuade him from such a scheme, assuring him that Mr. Darcy would consider his addressing him without an introduction as an impertinent freedom rather than a compliment to his aunt. That it was not in the least necessary there should be any notice on either side, and that if it were, it must belong to Mr. Darcy, the superior in consequence, to begin the acquaintance. Mr. Collins listened to her with the determined air of following his own inclination, and when she ceased speaking, replied thus. My dear Miss Elizabeth, I have the highest opinion in the world of your excellent judgment in all matters within the scope of your understanding, but permit me to say that there must be a wide difference between the established forms of ceremony amongst the laity and those which regulate the clergy. For, give me leave to observe that I consider the clerical office as equal in point of dignity with the highest rank in the kingdom, provided that a proper humility of behavior is at the same time maintained. You must therefore allow me to follow the dictates of my conscience on this occasion, which leads me to perform what I look on as a point of duty. Pardon me for neglecting to profit by your advice, which on every other subject shall be my constant guide. Though in the case before us, I consider myself more fitted by education and habitual study to decide on what is right than a young lady like yourself. And with a low bow, a low bow he left her to attack Mr. Darcy whose reception of his advances she eagerly watched Ugh. and who's this <laughs> Lizzie not your best not at your best and whose astonishment at being so addressed was very evident her cousin prefaced his speech with a solemn bow and though she could not hear a word of it she felt as if hearing it all and saw in the motion of his lips the words apology Hunsford and Lady Catherine de Bourgh it vexed her to see him expose himself to such a man mr darcy was eyeing him with unrestrained wonder and when at last mr collins allowed him time to speak replied with an air of distant civility mr collins however was not discouraged from speaking again and mr darcy's contempt seemed abundantly increasing with the length of his second speech at the end of it he only made him a slight bow and moved another way mr collins then returned to elizabeth 
I have no reason, I assure you, said he, to be dissatisfied with my reception. Mr. Darcy seemed much pleased with the attention. He answered me with the utmost civility and even paid me the compliment of saying that he was so well convinced of Lady Catherine's discernment as to be certain she could never bestow a favor unworthily. It was really a very handsome thought. Upon the whole, I am much pleased with him. As Elizabeth had no longer any interest of her own to pursue. She turned her attention almost entirely on her sister and Mr. Bingley, and the train of agreeable reflections which her observations gave birth to made her perhaps almost as happy as Jane. She saw her in idea settled in the very house, in all the felicity which a marriage of true affection could bestow, and she felt capable under such circumstances of endeavoring even to like Bingley's two sisters. Her mother's thoughts, she plainly saw, were bent on the same way, and she determined not to venture near her lest she might hear too much when they sat down to supper therefore she considered it a most unlucky perverseness which placed them within one of each other and deeply was she vexed to find that her mother was talking to that one person lady lucas freely openly and of nothing else but her expectation that jane would be married would be soon married to mr bingley it was an animating subject, and Mrs. Bennet seemed incapable of fatigue while enumerating the advantages of the match. His being such a charming young man, and so rich, and living but three miles from them, were the first points of self-congratulation, and then it was such a comfort to think how fond the two sisters were of Jane, and to be certain that they must desire the connection as much as she could do. It was, moreover, such a promising thing for her younger daughters, as Jane's marrying so greatly must throw them in the way of other rich men, and lastly, it was so pleasant at her time of life to be able to consign her single daughters to the care of their sister, that she might not be obliged to go into company more than she liked. It was necessary to make this circumstance a matter of pleasure, because on such occasions it is the etiquette, but no one was less likely than Mrs. Bennet to find comfort in staying at home at any period of her life. She concluded with many good wishes that Lady Lucas might soon be equally fortunate, though evidently and triumphantly believing there was no chance of it. In vain did Elizabeth endeavor to check the rapidity of her mother's words or persuade her to describe her facility in a less audible whisper. For to her inexpressible vexation, she could perceive that the chief of it was overheard by Mr. Darcy, who sat opposite to them. Her mother only scolded her for being nonsensical. What is Mr. Darcy to me, pray, that I should be afraid of him? I am sure we owe him no such particular civility as to be obliged to say nothing he might not like to hear. For heaven's sake, madam, speak lower. What advantage can it be to you to offend Mr. Darcy? You will never recommend yourself to his friend by doing so. Nothing that she could say, however, had any influence. Her mother would talk of her views in the same, the same intelligible tone. Elizabeth blushed and blushed again with shame and vexation. She could not help frequently glancing her eye at Mr. Darcy, though every glance convinced her of what she dreaded. For though he was not always looking at her mother, she was convinced that his attention was invariably fixed by her. The expression of his face changed gradually from indignant contempt to a composed and steady gravity. At length, however, Mrs. Bennet had no more to say, and Lady Lucas had been long yawning at the repetition of delights which she saw no likelihood of sharing, was left to the comforts of cold ham and chicken. Elizabeth now began to revive, but not long was the interval of tranquility, for when supper was over, singing was talked of, and she had the mortification of seeing Mary, after very little entreaty, preparing to oblige the company. <laughs> I know. By many significant looks and silent entreaties did she endeavor to prevent such a proof of complacence, but in vain 
Mary would not understand them. Such an opportunity of exhibiting was delightful to her, and she began her song. Elizabeth's eyes were fixed on her with the most painful sensations, and she watched her progress through the several stanzas with an impatience which was very ill-rewarded at their close. For Mary, on receiving amongst the thanks of the table, the hint of a hope that she might be prevailed on to favor them again after the pause of half a minute began another. Mary's powers were by no means fitted for such a display. Her voice was weak and her manner affected. Elizabeth was in agonies. She looked at Jane to see how she bore it, but Jane was very composedly talking to Bingley. She looked at his two sisters and saw them making signs of derision at each other and at Darcy, who continued, however, impenetrably grave. She looked at her father to entreat his interference, lest Mary should be singing all night. He took the hint, and when Mary had finished her second song, said aloud, That will do extremely well, child. You have delight us, delighted us long enough. Let the other young ladies have time to exhibit. Mary, though, pretending not to hear, was somewhat disconcerted, and Elizabeth, sorry for her and sorry for her father's speech, was afraid her anxiety had done no good. Others of the party were now applied to. If I, said Mr. Collins, were so fortunate as to be able to sing, I should have great pleasure, I am sure, in obliging the company with an air, for I consider music as a very innocent diversion and perfectly compatible with the profession of a clergyman. I do not mean, however, to assert that we can be justified in devoting too much of our time to music, for there are certainly other things to be attended to. The rector of a parish has much to do. In the first place, he must make such an, an agreement for the tithes as may be beneficial to himself and not offensive to his patron. He must write his own sermons, and the time that remains will not be too much for his parish duties and the care and improvement of his dwelling, which he cannot be excused from making as comfortable as possible. And I do not think it of light importance that he should have attentive and conciliatory manners towards everybody, especially towards those to whom he owes his preferment. I cannot acquit him of that duty, nor could I think well of the man who should omit an occasion of testifying his respects towards anybody connected with the family. And with a bow to Mr. Darcy, he concluded his speech, which had been spoken so loud as to be heard by half the room. Many stared, many smiled, but no one looked more amused than Mr. Bennet himself, while his wife seriously commended Mr. Collins for having spoken so sensibly and observed in a half whisper to Lady Lucas, he was a remarkably clever, good kind of young man. God, this I can't take any more of this car accident. <laughs> it is a pile up if ever there was one. And it's like we're getting like this like telescope from across the room. And she just keeps like peeping at Darcy. <laughs> God. And like she felt so pretty and she felt like righteously indignant. And then she had like a cute little flirtation and then she won that conversation. And now she here did. we are. Uh, uh, uh. Here we are. Truly wretched. To Elizabeth, it appeared that her family made an agreement to expose themselves as much as they could during the evening. It would have been impossible for them to play their parts with more spirit or finer success. And happy did she think it for Bingley and her sister that some of the exhibition had escaped his notice and that his feelings were not of a sort to be much distressed by the folly which he must have witnessed. That his two sisters and Mr. Darcy, however, should have such an opportunity of ridiculing her relations was bad enough, and she could not determine whether the silent contempt of the gentlemen or the insolent smiles of the ladies were more intolerable. The rest of the evening brought her little amusement. She was teased by Mr. Collins, who continued most perseveringly by her side, and though he could not prevail with her to dance with him again, 
put it out of her power to dance with others. In vain did she entreat him to stand up with somebody else and offer to introduce him to any young lady in the room. He assured her that as to dancing, he was perfectly indifferent to it, that his chief object was by delicate attentions to recommend himself to her, and that he should therefore make a point of remaining close to her for the whole evening. There's no arguing upon the subject. She owed her greatest relief to her friend, Miss Lucas, who often joined them and good-naturedly engaged with Mr. Collins' conversation to herself. She's at last, at least free from the office of Mr. Darcy's further notice, though often standing within a very short distance of her, quite disengaged, he never came near enough to speak. She felt it to be the probable consequence of her allusions to Mr. Wickham and rejoiced it. The Longbourn Party were the last of all the company to depart, and by a maneuver of Mrs. Bennet had to wait for their carriage a quarter of an hour after everybody else was gone, which gave them time to see how heartily they were wished away by some of the family. Mrs. Hurst and her sister scarcely opened their mouths except to complain of fatigue and were evidently impatient to have the house to themselves. They repulsed every attempt by Mrs. Bennet at conversation and by so doing threw a languor over the whole party, which was very little relieved by the long speeches of Mr. Collins, who was complimenting Mr. Bingley and his sisters on the elegance of the, their entertainment and the hospitality and the politeness which had marked their behavior to their guests. Darcy said nothing at all. Mr. Bennet, in equal silence, was enjoying the scene. Oh, bastard. Mr. <laughs> I know, he's such a fucking troll. <laughs> Mr. Bingley and Jane were standing together, a little detached from the rest, and talked only to each other. Elizabeth preserved as steady... As steady a silence as either Mrs. Hurst or Miss Bingley, and even Lydia was too much fatigued to utter more than the occasional exclamation of, Lord, how tired I am, accompanied by a violent yawn. Great. Great. <laughs> Super. When at length they arose to take leave, Mrs. Bennet was most pressingly civil in her hope of seeing the whole family soon at Longbourn and addressed herself particularly to Mr. Bingley to assure him how happy he would make them by eating a family dinner with them at any time without the ceremony of a formal invitation. Bingley was all grateful pleasure, and he readily engaged for taking the earliest opportunity of waiting on her after his return from London, whither he was obliged to go the next day for a short time. Mrs. Bennet was perfectly satisfied and quitted the house under the delightful persuasion that, allowing for the necessary preparations of settlements, new carriages, wedding clothes, she should undoubtedly see her daughter settled at Netherfield in the course of three or four months. Of having another daughter married to Mr. Collins, she thought with equal certainty and with considerable, though not equal, pleasure. Elizabeth was the least dear to her of all her children, and though the man and the match were quite good enough for her, the worth of each was eclipsed by Mr. Bingley. Oh, nasty. <laughs> oh, God. Mama's got a favorite. Well, she, you know, she's got a least favorite. <laughs> My little comment about soaring highs and terrible lows about chapter 17 was just totally trampled by chapter 18. Yes. What an intense emotional journey that was it's so much worse in the book it's so much worse in the book and it's relentless and it's uh it reminds me of the exorcist like everyone thinks the the movie is and the movie is very scary but mm -hmm. the book takes place oftentimes through the perspective of the demon and it's just like relentless you know mm -hmm. there's something about like relentlessness which just works so much better in books it's so true and like it 
it's almost like we're turning with Elizabeth and like there's no escape. There's like literally no space in that house that's safe from like the depredations and embarrassments of her family. The Bennets have like can just expand to fill every corner. And they do in this case. <laughs> and she keeps just like just the way she keeps peeping at Darcy and Bingley's sisters in particular. It's like it's pretty clear that as much as she like is into the idea of Wickham, she very much cares about Darcy's opinion, even in the sense of like she doesn't want him to think badly of them. Mm-hmm. And that he does, that he goes from indignant to then just like totally blank faced. Yeah. And she knows what that means because she's been saying paying such close attention to him. Ugh. Heartbreak. I'm also thinking I don't think Jane Austen gets enough credit for, like, economy of language. Mm-hmm. Hemingway gets a lot of credit for it, and he does a suit. He, hey, look, he does a great job. Sure. But he's telling stories where not nearly as much is happening. Mm-hmm. Like, not a single piece of dialogue is not doing three different jobs at one time in this text. So much happens in such a short amount of time. And not only does it like happen, right? Like action is on the page, but the depth and nuance of how everyone is feeling and then also projecting how they're feeling is also on the page. Yeah. And I know we complain about like the multitudinous drawing room scenes where people are just having the same conversation over and over again, but they're not really, you know? And it does do an important job of, like, illustrating the kind of, like, slow slog towards intimacy that exists in this world. I think it's interesting that you say slow slog because, like, it is. But even at the beginning of this chapter when she's, like, doing her hair and she's, like, made a special effort to improve her acquaintance with Bingley, she's like, everything will be settled by tonight, right? Like, I'll have won him over. And so like this slow slog of intimacy is also like really wrapped up in these like super high stakes public meetings where it's like if you can hope to win the affections of a man over the course of a ball while your family is just like rolling all over themselves to humiliate you, like the stakes are very high and no one knows that better than Elizabeth. But also like look at, um Bingley and Jane like they are still yeah like going through it and also I think you know Darcy's pride and Elizabeth's prejudice right that is creating that's putting a lot of uh dead weight on their ability to connect on the same level or or be like open to the fact that they are already there yes absolutely although he's yeah and like you can already kind of see like the way that like Darcy's trying to relax that where like so she's like you got to talk and he's like okay what do you want to talk about and she's like that'll be fine and then he's like okay <laughs> do you like books <laughs> and and then she's like I can't possibly talk about books right now what the fuck are you even thinking he's just so charmed by everything and she is she's like witty yeah she's very witty all the way down how could you not you would obviously be charmed by her even when she was being so mean to you I know, because you're like, that's funny. I get that. He just wants to lick her shoes. <laughs> he certainly wants to lick something. God, I just loved that little exchange that ugh, on the dance floor. Stop. Ugh. 
And so good. God, it just went so horribly wrong. And like that's the other thing is like that that kind of like emotional turmoil. Mm-hmm. That's like a whole novel's worth of <laughs> in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I don't think Austin gets credit for being like a very economical writer. I agree. She doesn't. And that's too bad because like some of these lines are just so short. They're like, you know, five words. Well, and they're so much better than no, they're not better than. I enjoy them more <laughs> than most of the like well edited, you know, writings that we celebrate as being as being sparse, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not about sparsity; it's about what you can accomplish in the least amount of words. And what she is accomplishing in very few words is giddiness, horror, mm-hmm. <laughs> shame. Mm-hmm. class warfare when she tells carolyn like it sounds to me like the only thing only beef you have is with his father's profession mm-hmm. it's like oh <laughs> you know like all of the nuances all of the problems are right there in the text but it's not a lot of text it's incredible yeah it truly is i wish i got to read chapter 18 it was very good it was very fun to read but alas i am the odd chapter reader well, this was only the first ball, you know. We've got we've got a lot more meetups to go. <laughs> uh, do you know what I'm ready for? Hmm. A drawing room scene. <laughs> well, you don't have to wait too long, Morgan. No, because I know the next one is probably going to be a breakfast table. That's absolutely true. The next one is definitely going to be at a breakfast table. Is it a breakfast table? Is it at a ball? Is it in a drawing room? Is it at a card game? Either way, be prepared to be eviscerated. I, no wonder Kitty and Lydia are always going on walks to Maryton. They want to avoid being in drawing rooms <laughs> and having their lives rocked. <laughs> it's true. They understand the fraught, cosseted spaces. The gauntlet that is, <laughs> exists behind a door. All doors. So true. With that. Uh, loosen your prejudices. And sometimes your pride. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 <laughs>